Thanks for tuning into the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Rob, and I am location pastor at Columbia for The Bridge. And for all my family here at Spring Hill, it's an honor to see you again. For those of you who are joining us online, we're so glad that you're connecting with us today, but especially uh, our family, my family uh, in Columbia. I love you. So glad to be serving with you. Uh, And so God uh, has done a beautiful, beautiful thing uh, in the midst of our community. Uh, so as we're going through this series, we're going through a series that's simply called uh, Limit Yourself. And the reason why that's an important uh, phrase, an important thing to remember, is that you and I, uh, we have this natural part of our humanity, and we live in a world that wants to live opposite of that. We don't wanna limit ourselves to anything. And so what happens is we just over, over stuff our life with all kinds of relationships, with all kinds of things we need to do, with all kinds of activities, with all kinds of busyness. And then out of nowhere, we're going, I wonder why our society is so depressed and stressed. And it's because we have a hard time limiting ourselves. Uh, If you remember in the first series uh, of this series, uh, there was a painting that Ian uh, placed before you, and it's that famous 1885 classic from Vincent van Gogh uh, called The Star Night. Do you remember that image? It's a beautiful, beautiful image. Uh, And how he tied it to van Gogh's own spiritual journey uh, in his life. It also showed you that Ian is very cultured. Uh, So I'm going to tell you how I'm cultured. And so uh, there's another uh, image. There's another piece of art, uh, fine art, that's one of the most precious pieces on the planet. In fact, it's actually a modern uh, treatment. This, This is only from 1977. In fact, when I show this, there will probably be many of you that will feel very emotional as you, as you look at this portrayal. So go ahead and put it up there. This is my famous, this is the most famous <laughs> painting of all time. Star Wars, A New Hope. <laughs> so, um, so uh, 1977, and unfortunately, I can literally remember uh, when, that, uh, when this came out. And the reason why I tend to be a huge Star Wars fan, among many other reasons I don't want to share this morning, uh, is because uh, through Star Wars, we're exposed to the concept of rebellion and resistance and that being a good thing. So in other words, you know, I'm a father of four. Uh, we didn't get with our children and we're raising them up and, up and we say, okay, kids, here's the deal. Our goal for you is to be outright rebels. We would never do that. But see, for those of you who are seekers, for those of you who may not say that you are a follower of Jesus, Maybe you'll be coming here or joining us online or in Columbia out of curiosity about the Christian faith. We Christians, we actually believe that we are part of an empire. Much of that empire is invisible. Some of it's visible, but much of the time it is not. 
In fact, 1 John 2.16 describes this empire like this. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says that before we were Christians, before we were Christ followers, that we followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So I literally, as a communicator of the gospel today, I unabashedly and unapologetically say as Christ followers, we are to be rebels. We are to be part of the resistance. And so this whole series is trying to understand what does that look like? Uh, so a book that this series has been largely framed around is uh, the book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And so Justin Early, the author of that book said this, when we practice resistance, we acknowledge that evil and suffering are very real, though they aren't how the world was made to be. But remember that resistance has a purpose, love. The habits of resistance aren't supposed to shield you from the world, but to turn you toward it. Uh, we would love for you to go to a website that has been devoted to this sermon series. It's bridge.tv slash rhythms. And you can go there and not only is this sermon series being placed on there, but we talk about um, weekly rhythms that we engage in. We also talk about daily rhythms that we engage in. And these are practices. Now, let me make something very clear. We are not saying we do these practices so the Lord will love us. That's not what we're saying. We're not about behavior modification. What we're trying to say is when we engage in these practices, when we do these things to limit ourselves of certain things, we are better able to see who is above the empire, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, Jesus himself. That's why we do these things. So two practices that I kind of want to double dog dare us to do as a family of God is, first of all, let's try doing something very scandalous, putting down our phones for an hour a day. Putting down our phones for an hour a day. You know the reason why this is actually provocative for me to say something honestly as dumb as that? It's because we have attached our identity to technology We've attacked our significance to pixels. We've let the stories that unwind and unwind, and we say, that's my story. And then we wonder where we are as a culture. So putting down our phones for an hour a day, and then a weekly rhythm, fasting from something once a week. Many times, fasting can be put, going without food for 24 hours, something that we normally have in our life that we're very attached to. Now, here's the thing. If you do one or both of these things, we're probably gonna feel it. We actually will probably feel a sense of loss. And that's the reason why we do it. And so, see, here's the concept. In order to receive from God, here's the main idea for today. In order to receive from God, we must be willing to resist our false ideas about God. In order to receive from God, we must be willing to resist our false ideas about God. 
See, at the end of the day, it's not really about phones. It's not just about what we do. It's not just about fasting and taking away food because when we do that, we have to deal with somebody called ourselves. We have to deal with this jungle that exists inside of us. In order to receive from God, we must be willing to resist our false ideas from God. I think this is common sense. If we wanna receive something, we need to be ready to resist something. Let me give you examples. If we want a nice physique, we must resist pounding a box of Little Debbies. <laughs> right, Mark? If we want a good football team, we must resist orange and white checkerboard end zones. <laughs> I'm just letting that sit. <laughs> if we want beautiful melodies, we must resist putting the words bro and country together. <laughs> if we want a soulmate, we must resist lowering our standards to get that mate and then losing our soul in the process. If we want a Christ-honoring life, we must resist our own version of Christ that ironically is horribly dishonoring. If we want stress-free lives, we must resist overstuffing ourselves with things that have no eternal value. See, my friends, there are, min there are millions and millions in our society who will never come to a worship gathering that are not connected to God whatsoever. And there's conferences and there's, there's podcasts, uh, there's YouTube videos, there's uh, stories that talk about what is the main thing that's getting in the way of our witness to unbelievers. And of course, we always point to that one that's existed ever since the church has existed. It's the overt hypocrisy of the church. And that is absolutely true. And when hypocrites and hypocrites join it, uh, we are 100% all the time in terms of hypocrisy. Some people say, well, maybe it's our sexual ethics, all the moral failures that have happened within leadership and leadership caving in in many churches. Absolutely, I'm sure that is a contributor. I actually think there's one that's more subtle and more lethal. It's our calendars. It's our calendars. I think actually there are many times we actually portray a stressed out Christ to an already stressed out world. So why would we want that Christ? In fact, a lady by the name of Jean Fleming wrote this a few years ago. She says, we need to scrutinize the rush of our activities because even venerable exertions, in other words, honorable exertions, may be keeping us from becoming and doing what God wants. A packed schedule may be detrimental, not only to ourselves, but to those we seek to help. A few years ago, our neighbors were drawn to us, but when we talked to them about the Lord, their response was, we couldn't be Christians. We couldn't live at your pace. They had been attracted to Christ, but the busyness of our lives had scared them from a commitment. So, if we're gonna unpack this main idea in order to see from God, we must be willing to resist our false ideas about God. We're going to go to an account that's not only located in the Gospel of Mark, 
It's located in the Gospel of Matthew. It's also located in the Gospel of Luke. It's also located in the Gospel of John. It's almost like the Gospel writers got together and they all went, oh, we have to include this one. If you have grown up in church, you have seen this story flannelgraphed, you have heard this preached, you probably have written about it, you have journaled about it, your mind's been blown about it because of the huge scope of this miracle and it's the feeding of the 5,000. We're gonna go to Mark 6 in a few moments and here's what I'm going to do. I've already told you the main point today in order to receive from God, we must be willing to resist our false ideas about God. And so the sub points that hopefully are propping up that main point, I'm going to tell you that point and then we're gonna march through Mark chapter six. So here's the first idea that we need to resist about God. We must resist the idea that God is committed to our convenience. We must be committed. We must resist the idea that God's passion in his life is to be convenient as possible. Let me tell you where we're getting this. So uh, here we are in Mark chapter six. Uh, the disciples of Jesus have just heard the account of John the Baptist who had been beheaded because of his allegiance to God. Jesus gets with the disciples, they get into a boat, they travel over to the sea. And when they do that, something happens that's very inconvenient. People, <laughs> starting in verse 31, it says, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So they're tired, they're hungry, and when they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So now the crowd comes around them and later on in verse 35, it says, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. And what do they say? What do these beautiful, godly, focused disciples say? Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and by themselves something to eat. My friends, we must resist the idea that God is committed to our convenience. Folks, the great promise is God promises us his comfort. He does not promise us circumstantial convenience. If you live for convenience, then you will need to pass on the Christian faith because the leader of that faith has a history of flipping tables and leading us to many places we do not want to go. Convenience does not equal maturity. In fact, an enslavement to convenience creates the false idea that we are powerful and autonomous. Convenience also warps our view of other people whereby we see other people as only opportunities to be used or as a potential interruption to our sacred commitment to ourselves. We must resist the idea that God is committed to our convenience. One of the most horrible news stories I've ever read occurred in the early 2000s. There was a lady in Kansas City by the name of LaShonda Calloway. 
And LaShonda was walking toward a convenience store and on her way there, there was an altercation and she was stabbed multiple times. She managed to stumble and keep walking and she got to the convenience store. When she got there, the automatic doors opened and she got a few steps inside of the convenience store and collapsed and the doors closed. And then the doors open and a guy comes in and he looks down and walks on. He got a bag of chips. The door opens again. Another person looks down, takes a picture of her with his phone and walks on. A third person comes in and walks by. A fourth person walks in and walks by. Five people. LaShonda died on a convenience store floor. That should offend every one of us in this room. There is something visceral when we read about that account. And I by no means am trying to diminish the abuse and the horror of what happened to LaShonda Calloway physically. I wanna make sure that you hear that before you hear what I am about to say. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, people apart from Christ are in a worse plight. And you and I work alongside, live next to, interact. We have many interactions with people all the time. But when we are committed to convenience, we can dismiss the greatest need. So here's the next point. We must resist the idea that God is not moved by our deepest need. Let us not edit this and transpose this to say that we must resist the idea that God is not moved by our deepest wants and desires and goals, but he is moved by our deepest need. Here's what happens in verse 33. Let's move on with the story. It says, now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and, he, and what does Jesus do? Remember the disciples, send them away. And here's Jesus. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So I think I can go ahead and say this today. Do you see that Jesus saw those people differently than the disciples saw them? They saw them as interruptions. They saw them as other people need to take care of them. Let's farm out all this hard stuff to other people. But Jesus says, no, they are like sheep without a shepherd. If you are considering the Christian faith, I need to warn you about something. If Jesus gets a hold of your life, you will never see other people the same way again. 
You you won't even see your enemies the same way that you've seen them before. You won't even see some of the histories that you've gone through relationally in the same way before, because I'm telling you, that is what grace does. It impacts how we see. See, my friends, we are suffering from a compassion deficit within our culture. Compassion cannot be engineered from a place of our personality, politics, preferences, or even our pain. True compassion begins by seeing people through the tragedy of their spiritual lostness. Confession. I am a natural egomaniac. It takes no effort for me to think of me. It takes no effort for me to consider myself in the middle of my universe. It takes no effort for me to only hang with people who have common interests that I do or the same personalities that I do. I could do that all day long. But when we see other people through, are they connected to Jesus or disconnected to Jesus? That changes the whole game, folks. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was describing the crowds that Jesus interacted with, he said these words in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, they had questions, but no answers. Distress, but no relief. Anguish of conscience, but no deliverance. Tears, but no consolation. Sin, but no forgiveness. Tim Keller echoed these words years ago. When a Christian sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, refugees, he knows that he is looking in a mirror. Perhaps the Christian spent all of his life as a respectable middle-class person, no matter He thinks, spiritually, I was just like these people, though physically and socially, I never was where they are. They are outcasts. Spiritually speaking, I was an outcast. So just to repeat, we must resist the idea that God is committed to our convenience. We must resist the idea that God is not moved by our deepest need. And thirdly, we must resist the idea that we are the owners of God's resources. This is what happens. The disciples go into problem-solving mode. They go into math and trying to figure this problem out. They're probably thinking through all their leadership books and the best practices of organizing thousands of hungry people. And this is what it says in verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? A denarii was equivalent of one day's uh, salary. So this is, they're saying we would have to work for seven months to feed all these people. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. So let's rewind a little bit. The gospel of Matthew says that actually only the men were counted in this account. 
Back then in the ancient world, when you did a census, you basically counted the heads of the homes. And so you didn't count uh, wives and children. So here's the deal. Conservatively, we're actually talking about 15,000 people. So let's do some math. 15,000 people. So that means the crowd was actually, again, close to 15,000 people. That means for each disciple, there was approximately 1,250 people. Uh, because they were divided in groups of 50 to 100, that means each disciple was in charge of 25 groups of 50 or 12 groups of 100. That's a problem, a huge problem. Can I give you a side sermon real quick? It's not on the notes. When God's people are filled to the brim with pride, he will put you to work. Pride introduces stress into our life. They're not getting it. Folks, they're doing bad math. You know what they're thinking? They're getting their little camel hide register out. See what I did there? And, and they're, they're, they're going through the numbers. All right, we have 15,000 people. If we partition everybody, that means each of us is in charge of 1,250 people and all these groups of either 50 or, or 100. I mean, and they're going by the numbers. And what do we have? Well, we have, we have, five, we have five loaves. We have to fish. In other words, when the disciples were saying, let them go to somebody else, conventional thinking would say this, that's a good idea. <laughs> but they left something out of their math. I don't know if you caught it. They're missing a grand decibel point in their calculations. Like there's a number that they didn't involve in all their calculations. What did they forget as they were sizing it up? They had Christ. They had Christ. See my friends, when um, I'm a horrific husband, when I feel like I own my wife and I own my children. Instead of being stewards of God's grace in his life, I start acting as an owner. The church of Jesus starts getting jacked up when the church of Jesus feel like they own Jesus and not that Jesus purchased and owns us. We don't look at our work in a healthy way when we feel like we own our owners of our work. We're owners of our money. We're owners of our relationship. We're owners of our time. And Paul says like a battering ram of Colossians that all things have been made by, for, and through Jesus Christ. I understand this may not be polite. We own nothing. You and I did not craft our oxygen this morning. You and I did not create a single cloud. You and I didn't create another person in the secret place. God did that. And my friends, 
The small amount of bread that they had, it was God's bread. Those fish, God made every scale. He made every part of it. In their calculations, they forgot the one who's incalculable. And here's what they do. Jesus, he just starts dealing. He just starts getting that bread, and he just starts dealing bread. He gets that fish, and he just starts dealing fish. And because of the amount of people, they probably did this all day long. I have to be honest with you. If I'm Rob the disciple, and if I was in this story, I wish I could tell you that my attitude would totally be, here am I. I go, Lord, I could totally see myself, really? I'm tired. I was really the one to come here by ourselves so we can rest. And you're duplicating all this? That's probably how I would start. but you know how I would probably be at the very, very end? I get it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I tried to act like an owner. We are just distributors. That's who we are. Here's the last thing I want to challenge us to resist. We must resist the idea that God has cheated us. I want to propose that for many followers of Jesus, we overstuff our schedules, overextend ourselves, get flaky in our relationships, act out of the fear of missing out, and damage ourselves emotionally because we believe God is holding out on us. If we believe God is holding out on us, then becoming discontent naturally follows though they were exhausted, dirty, and probably stressed. Jesus does something here, honestly, that blows my mind. I have to confess, I'm a church kid, so I have read this and I've heard this preached literally for decades. And it actually probably wasn't until around 10 years ago that I kept overlooking a tiny detail in this whole account. This is what it says in verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and other fish. Let me rewind. They've been distributing, they've been distributing, handing out fish, handing out bread, hours and hours and hours. And after the last person is fed and who was filled, they come to Jesus and he has 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. And what is he saying? I got you. I got you. I'm taking care of you. I'm going to work 
in and around you. I'm going to get my glory out of you. I really believe this is like one of the huge deals with a lot of us is the reason why we have so much anxiety and the reason why we make unhealthy choices and the reason why we fall into addictions is because we believe that what God has given us is not enough. Folks, I'm telling you, if God has provided Christ, we have everything we will ever need. He is that great. He is that wonderful. He is the jewel of our life. He is the diamond that does not stop shimmering. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the personification of Jehovah Jireh. He is not only our provider, he is our provision. Christ is everything to Christians. That's why we are Christians. Because when they look down at that basket, each one of them has broken bread. If they were good Jewish boys, do you know where they went to? Exodus. Here is God getting them through the sea. In this account, they just got off a boat and they were in a desert. Here, they're in a desolate place. And he provides them what in the desert? He provides them food in the desert. But guess what? Jesus is the better Moses. Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. And what, do, what does a shepherd do for sheep? He makes them lie down in green pastures. What did Jesus do? Even though this was a desolate place out of nowhere, what does the Lord do besides the fish and the bread? He has them all sit on grass in a pasture. Jesus is the greater David. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus takes his disciples into the upper room. And what does he do? He breaks bread and he gets wine and he says, this is my body that's gonna be broken for you. This is my blood that's gonna be shed for you. See, the point of this passage is not merely to help needy people. It's not merely that Jesus uh, performs a miracle. The deepest meaning is Jesus is the bread of life. And here is good news, Bridge. Isn't it amazing? that our Lord allowed himself to be broken to put together broken people. He broke his own body so that we can have a verdict that goes from, I am a child of the adversary, the devil, and I am being adopted into the God of the universe. He broke his body that we can go from, I'm sinful at enmity and enemy of God to my verdict is freedom, forgiven. I don't know about you, I'll take that bread any day, any day. Today's a special day because we get to celebrate communion together 
we actually are getting ready to commemorate what this pointed to. As you came in today, you have a cup and a wafer and Christians, followers of Jesus have been doing this literally for centuries. And when we take part in this, we are commemorating and celebrating what God has done in Christ for us. Hey, followers of Jesus, let me first talk to you. I don't know where I got this. I kind of grew up thinking that when I took part in communion, it's something that I had to offer to the communion. And so therefore, if I was having jacked up quiet times and my thought life was out of control and I was all out of uh, sorts, then there's no way I'm gonna come and do communion. But remember, it's what God has done for us. So literally taking part in communion is an act of repentance for us. It's our rally cry, it's our flag that we plant. It is to say, there is nothing in my life that's more certain and more beautiful than what this symbolizes right now. And that is the death of Christ on my behalf. If you're not a follower of Christ, we respectfully ask that you just observe and watch and experience. Because to take part in something where we say that's not who I am goes in contradiction to what it's trying to communicate. But I will say this, there's nothing stopping today to be the first communion for you. You are sitting among hundreds of people. Many people join us online in Colombia who at one point were separated from God and couldn't do anything to solve that disconnect from God. And we are declaring our allegiance to the one who did it for us, who died in our place, lived for us, died for us, rose again from the grave for us. And so you're here today and you're like, and when you talk about that broken bread, that's my life. That's my life. Do you wanna come to the one who will put you together and taking, take you to himself for eternity? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. So after I pray, I know we have this reflex here that as soon as uh, communicators pray, everybody stands. We're gonna do a little bit different. After I pray, we ask, actually ask followers of Christ, go ahead and stay in your seat and just walk through and rehearse the gospel and take part in communion at your seat. And as soon as you're done, go ahead and stand on your own. That means it'll probably be really messy and people standing will be, look like a little patchwork and that's okay, that's okay. There will also be a prayer team up here. And you're like, uh, I, need to, I need somebody to pray with me. I've got stuff. I'm realizing things about my life. And I need prayer. I wanna invite somebody into this. I need, I need people, I need somebody to pray with me. They would love to pray with you today. All right? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. 
We know that he is not only the living water, he is the bread of life. And Lord, I ask God, as a follower of Christ, that you would deepen, that you would deepen our joy and enjoyment of you. Lord, I ask God that if you have brought here people today who are utterly lost, they may have great reputations, what looks on the outside like healthy families, and may look very self-sufficient, but they're lost. They're sheep without a shepherd. Lord, I pray that you draw them to yourself. I just pray, God, that you would grant them your Holy Spirit, that you would grant them faith, that you would draw them to yourself and adopt them today. Lord, thank you for this holy moment in your awesome and precious name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at BridgeChurchTN. Thanks again for listening.